Hey, years ago, I had an opportunity to preach an Easter morning service. It was a sunrise service, but we were all a little bit too lazy to do sunrise, so we did 7 a.m. instead of the 6 a.m. where the sun was risen. But, and we had a fun time with that, right? Sunrise, S-U-N, sun, S-O-N, rise. So even like 14 years ago, I was doing dad jokes, uh, but we had a good time with that. But what, the, the great thing about that time where I preached was that it was actually in a graveyard that was 300 years old. It was a graveyard that was behind the church that I was at at the time, and it was a 300-year-old graveyard, and I'll never forget it because it's such a cool place to be in when we're celebrating the resurrection in a graveyard. A reminder that, like, this is not the end here. That one day, because Jesus rose from dead, one day we, Jesus will return and we all will be risen from the dead, some of us to judgment and others to eternal life. And it was a great, cool thing to be a part of. Now, in that cemetery, this is a true story, there actually is a man who is buried there who served along George Washington in the American Revolution. Now, just imagine with me, as cool as that is, how I would have reacted if I pulled into the parking lot that morning, walked up the hill, and the grave was dug up, and the casket was open, and there was no bones, I guess, at that point. Like, I... I don't know if you were like me, I wouldn't have stuck around, right? I would have booked it to the car. I would have been out of there. And this is kind of how the women feel as they show up at the tomb. It's a similar type of shock and confusion they experience when they go to Jesus' tomb that I would have experienced if that surgeon, it was a surgeon who served George Washington, rose from the dead, and his grave was now empty. I'd be a little freaked out. And you would too. But what I want to see, what I want to show you today is that the first witnesses of the resurrection, and I don't think we can emphasize this enough, were skeptics. Were people who never expected Jesus to rise from the dead. And with that, I want us to remember that God invites you and I to come to him with all of our questions. God invites us to come to him with all of our doubts about Jesus' resurrection desiring that we would be emboldened by it, and he wants us to leave today marveling of all he has done for us in Jesus. See, God wants you. He invites you. He welcomes the questions and doubts and uncertainties that we have. But he desires that we would see the resurrection and we'd be emboldened by it, and that we would leave today marveling over all that he's done, being filled with wonder and astonishment. So I want to talk about three things today. I want, to talk, I want us to come perplexed, I want us to be emboldened, and I want us to leave marveling. So first, let's talk about coming perplexed. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, just stop right there for a second. The women saw where Jesus was buried on Friday— but Saturday's the Sabbath, so they don't go on Saturday to do this. They hold off, they rest because that's what the Torah told them to do. And the first crack of dawn, not like me and my sermon, I didn't push it back an hour, they went right away to this tomb. And when they got there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
The resurrection of Jesus shows us that what perplexes us isn't a problem for God. Jesus, time and time again throughout Luke, makes allusions to his resurrection. He talks about a son, a brother, who is lost, is now found, who is dead, but is now alive. In chapter 16, he talks to Lazarus, he talks about in the parable about the poor man, excuse me, the rich man Lazarus. He tells, God, Abraham tells Lazarus in that story that even if somebody rose from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. But even though he did that, even though he said it, even though they heard his words, the women show up and they aren't expecting Jesus to be alive. See, if you've read this story, you heard this story a hundred times, you think this is just, you know the end of the story, so you think they knew what was going to happen. But if you enter the story with the women, you realize that they were skeptics. How do we know that they weren't expecting Jesus to be alive? Because of how they came. Teenagers, young people, I don't know if you knew this, but back in the day, they used to, for tombs, they used to cut holes in these big rocks. And they actually buried people, they wrapped them up, and they buried them like on shelves, right? That's kind of how they did it. It's a little bit weird, I get it, but that's how they did it. And people would bring spices to help with the smell as the body decomposed. All right, so it's the good thing this is before lunch. But think about this, right? Bodies decompose, so they bring the spices to make sure they don't smell as bad as they decompose. So here's the deal. You don't bring spices for people who are alive. You bring spices when you expect that person to be dead when you get there. And so the fact that they brought spices means that they didn't expect Jesus to be alive when they get there. They were expecting him to be dead. See, the Jewish people believed that at the end of time, God would raise everyone from the dead, he would judge the wicked, and he would vindicate the righteous. But no one, and listen to me, no one believed that one man in the middle of history will be raised from the dead. No one believed that. So they don't need your eighth grade science teacher to point that out to you. First century people knew what 21st century people know. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. So don't buy these arguments that, oh, well, now in the 21st century, we know better that dead people don't rise from the dead. In the first century, they knew that too. They knew it too. You're dead, you're dead. So the women who were good Jews believed the same thing. So when they come to the tomb, they're perplexed by what they see. The stones rolled away, and Jesus' body is missing. And while they're perplexed, they're met by these two men in dazzling apparel, which are angels. And that freaks them out just a little bit. And it says that while they're perplexed, these men talk to them. While they're perplexed. Perplexed in Greek is the word apareo. It means to be filled with uncertainty, to be puzzled. Many of us have gotten the impression, and often from people in church, that our questions, our doubts, our uncertainties, the things that puzzle us or perplex us, aren't welcomed. Don't ask any questions. 
But God doesn't invite us to figure out everything before we come to him. Instead, the Bible's filled with people asking questions. Some of the superheroes of the Bible ask questions. One in particular is David. Psalm 42, 9, David says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Have you ever felt like that? God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Psalm 13, listen to these words. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? See, many of us have questions about God, about the things that he done, has done, about things he claims he will do. But the problem is we don't ask those questions to God. See, that's the difference. It's okay to have questions about God. Where we, where we go wrong is when we don't ask those questions to God. See, God's not afraid of your questions. God's not afraid if, like, the resurrection just, like, doesn't make sense. And frankly, with, I'm the pastor. It doesn't make sense to me either. Dead people are dead. But he just asks you to bring them to him. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me, this is God speaking, Call to me, and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Listen to those words. Ask, seek, knock, call. So we're not wrong to ask questions. We're just asking questions oftentimes to the wrong person. See, when I have questions about my car, I take it to the mechanic, not the physician. When I have questions about my health, I go to the physician, not the mechanic. Because if I'm asking the physician to come check out my car, like, I filled the tires, and that's about as good as I can do. Can you tell me what's going on? He's like, I'm a physician. I'm not a mechanic. And if I'm like, hey, I'm having this weird breathing thing. I, I need to do, do something with, with that. I don't show up to my mechanic, Bill, and be like, Bill, tell me what's going on in here, man. I'm asking the wrong person. I'm not asking the wrong questions. I'm asking the wrong person. So for many of us, we're asking questions about things we aren't sure about, but we're asking the wrong person. So we go to friends, and we ask them the questions about God. Or we go to the internet, or we go to our classmates, or, or we go to other people. Or worse, if you're like me, you go to yourself, and you try to figure it out on your own. But God's asking us to come to him with the things that perplex us, the things that puzzle us, the things that fill us with uncertainty. What questions are you asking about God that you should be asking to God? How about why did blank happen to me? Or when is that person who hurt me going to receive justice? Or why am I going through this health crisis? Or when will my hopes and dreams come true? See, many of us ask those questions about God and we expect them to do something about it, but we're not asking them to him. And so our skepticism takes many forms. I can't believe in a God, we say, who will let me go through X, Y, or Z. Or God can't seriously expect me to consistently worship him with his people. 
after what I've been through. Or my problems are too big. I don't need God. I'll figure it out on my own. Or skepticism might look like saying, I've been through too much or I'm too far from God for him to accept me. Or God's great, but he's out of touch with my life. See, we ask a lot of questions about God, but we never take those things to God. And because of that, and because we never ask, or we never seek, or we never knock, or never call, it's never given, we never find, the door is not open to us, and we never get answers. See, God might not give you the answer you want, but he always answers. So he says, call to me. Ask your questions. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's no. But if you're like me, what God often says is, just wait and trust me. But when we ask questions about God, but don't take our questions to God, what ends up happening is we find ourselves falling further into doubt, further into anxiety. Like when you go to your friends to help you figure out your doubt, and not to God to help you figure it out? You just are left with more doubt. Like, your friends are great. My friends are great. But oftentimes, honestly, and I'm one of the friends who sometimes is the one receiving the questions, it's like the blind leading the blind out there. And when I do that, I fall into further doubt, or I fall into further anxiety, or further worry, or further fear, because we're trying to figure out all the complexities of life on our own. But we're only so strong. You're only so smart. You're only so wise. Your problem-solving skills, I don't care how good you are at it, is only so good. You and I have our limits, but God who raised Jesus from the dead doesn't. So as long as you're trying to figure out the complex yourself, you'll never stop being perplexed. Jesus' resurrection may be hard for you to believe, but God invites you to come with all your complexities, with all your questions, with all your uncertainties, with all your doubts, as perplexed as you are, God says, bring them to me. Come, see for yourself. See the empty tomb. See Jesus isn't there. See that he's risen. So if you're here today and you're skeptical, first, you're in really good company because the women were skeptical too. And so were the apostles, which we'll find out later. Or you're just having trouble believing. I just encourage you, start today. Just give those things over to God, silently in your seat. God, these are the questions I've been asking about you, but now I am bringing them to you. God, my life is complex, and I've been trying to deal with my complex life on my own, so that's why I'm left perplexed, God. So I need you to help me figure this out. God, I'm puzzled. I don't understand. I don't know why this happened to me. I don't know why this, this person is not receiving justice. But God, I need to no longer be the solution. I need the government to no longer be the solution. I need the justice system to no longer be the solution. I need you to be my solution. That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. Just silently in your seat, just come to God and say, God, I've been asking these questions about you. I'm now asking them to you. Because God invites you to come as you are, but he says, I'm, I don't invite you to stay as you are. 
I want to embolden you. And so, the other thing we see here is that we can be emboldened. And so you look at verse 6. So the men are talking again, the angels are talking, and say, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. Son of Man is a way of referring to Jesus. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all the, these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now as Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but the words... These words seem to be to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So God invites us to come perplexed, but he also emboldens us. See, the resurrection emboldens us as we remember who Jesus is and what he said. See, the women are emboldened by the resurrection here. They had to tell the apostles about what happened. So young people, in the first century, women were treated as sex-class citizens. Actually, it was worse than that. Like, you couldn't even use a woman as a witness to a crime because her testimony would get thrown out just because she's a woman. So you think things are bad for women now. Back then, it was significantly worse. So the women, though, they're emboldened. They don't care about these cultural norms. So they run and they tell others. Think about that they're probably not going to believe us because we're women. But something has happened that emboldens us to go tell what happened. And when they tell the apostles, what, do the apostles believe them? No. They think they're telling an idle tale. Idle tale in the Greek is actually was used often in everyday life to refer to someone who's in so much pain after they lost a loved one that they become delirious. So the apostles think the women are so distraught. Oh, women, they're always so emotional. I didn't say that. The apostles said it. They're so emotional about this loss that they lost Jesus, that they're now seeing things. They're nuts. Man, do I love the Bible. Man, do I love the Bible. The Bible is just so honest. Like, I love how honest the Bible is. Like, if you and I were writing this story, and we're one of the apostles telling Luke what happened, wouldn't you paint yourself as the superstar? Like, wouldn't you have been like, yeah, we were all using our sundial watches, waiting for Jesus to be resurrected. We knew it was going to happen. So yeah, when the women showed up, we are like, duh. Come on, guys. Yeah, we knew this was going to happen. We were just waiting for you guys to figure it out. But the Bible's more honest than that. The Bible's more honest than we are. It's not afraid to tell us that Jesus' closest friends and students were also skeptics of the resurrection. They thought the women were nuts. See, I began to follow Jesus when I was 15. So young people, 15 years old is when I started to follow Jesus. And I remember the people who had the hardest time believing I changed or supporting me were other followers of Jesus. See, I'd grown up in the church and everyone had seen my warts. So when I came and told my so-called friends I changed, they didn't believe me. They thought 
I was the same Evan as I was before. But God done something miraculous in my life that I had to share it with others. Even if meant people would think I'm nuts. See, for some of you, you're going to believe in Jesus, you're going to have faith, and your friends and family and neighbors are going to think you're nuts. And worse, some people at church are going to think you're nuts. But when God gets a hold of your life, you become so emboldened by what Jesus did for you that it doesn't matter if these people think you're nuts. You're emboldened anyway. But what emboldened the women? What does it say? In verse 8, they remembered Jesus' words. See, if you want to move, I want to move from being perplexed to being emboldened. I have to remember what Jesus has said. I have to remember his promises to me. I have to remember how he loves me. I have to remember how he died for me. I have to remember that Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. I have to remember that Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I have to remember that. I have to remember that he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be fearful. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He said, I promise to go ahead and prepare a place for you, and I promise that I'll come back again. If I'm going to be emboldened, if you're going to be emboldened, we have to remember the things that Jesus has said to us and about us and all of who he is. We have to remember that he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. We have to remember that he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have to remember what Colossians says, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We have to remember that he's our mediator. He, he's our intercessor. Think about that. Jesus says, right now, I am praying for you before the Father. Like, doesn't that embolden you? That Jesus, while I'm preaching, while you're sitting here, he's praying for you. He says, I'm your brother and your friend. I'm the one who died for your sins. I'm the one who rose from the dead. And if you put my fa your faith in me, I'll make you right with God. And I'll free you to love others. See, if you and I move from being perplexed to being emboldened, we need to remember. Remember all that Jesus has said. Remember all who he is. And when we remember, we're emboldened to share the good news with others. See, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, I didn't just, like, sit on my hands and be like, hey, that was a great game. That was a great game. No, as soon as Tom Brady threw up that Hail Mary and I, like, swore we were going to lose. <laughs> I was like, it's done. Philadelphia, here we go. And the ball hit the ground. I jumped up in the air, I hugged my sons, and we ran out into the street. And I'm high-fiving dudes I've never even met. Guys are crying, I'm hugging people, and there's fireworks being shot off. Right? The, something so amazing and miraculous has done has never happened in my life. I need to go share this with somebody. Many of us react better to the eagles than we do to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. See, when you realize what Jesus has done for you, what he's done for you in his death and his resurrection, how his death and resurrection has freed you from shame, sin, death, and the devil, and when you put your faith and trust in him, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if this has never happened before. It doesn't matter the questions or doubts that you have or what you've been through or how far you've been from him. Jesus died for you, and he rose for you. Don't sit on it. 
Don't go. Just go home. Don't golf clap. Yeah, all right. That was really awesome. Jesus rose from dead. All right, yeah. You got to tell somebody. And when you do, some people are going to think you're out of your mind. And in some sense, you are. Because it doesn't make sense. A guy the Romans killed is alive today and is sitting on a throne in heaven next to the Father. People are going to think you're out of your mind. Some people are going to think you're sharing idle tales. Some people are going to think you're nuts. But when you believe that, when that's really true for you, when you realize that this never was expected, and I never thought this would happen, but Jesus rose from the dead, you become emboldened. Some of us here may have never put our faith in, in Jesus. You need to be emboldened right now. Just take the first step and then share that with others. You're the best person to share it with your friends. Because guess what? They don't know me from Adam. But they know you. And they might think you're nuts. And they might think, oh yeah, you're the same old Evan as before. But many of us who've been Christians for a long time, we've lost that emboldened attitude. We've lost the remembrance of what Jesus has said and what he did. And you need to be emboldened again. When I first became a follower of Jesus, I, like, I couldn't hold it in. It just came out everywhere. I remember my Bible like, looked like, like a third grader just like, took a crayon and pen to it. And I just wanted to share verses with people. Like people I didn't even know. People on the airplane. People on the train. I just would share with people. And they're probably like, oh, this teenage kid. But I couldn't help it. Remember what that was like? Be emboldened. And leave marveling. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. See, when I realize all that Jesus has done for me, when you realize all Jesus has done for you and has said to you and about you, you can't do anything but marvel at that. So while the other apostles are just like blowing off the women, something stirs up in Peter that he has to get up. He has to run. He has to go see. And when he gets there, he stoops down and he looks in and he sees what? Jesus isn't there. And he leaves the tomb marveling. Marveling means to be filled with wonder and astonishment. So when Peter, after marveling at the resurrection, and later he actually sees the risen Jesus himself, he's so emboldened to preach the gospel to the people in Jerusalem at Pentecost that he says this in Acts chapter 2. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. Listen to that. According to the definite plan and knowledge of God. You know what that means? Jesus' death didn't surprise God. You know what that means? Nothing in your life surprises God. God knew it was going to happen. God planned for it to happen. And he says this, which you never really want to put on your Easter card to anyone. You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. But he says what? God planned it, and God did what? Raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it's not possible 
for him to be held by it. I like how one commentator says it. He, he, re, he paraphrases it and he says, but God untied the death ropes and raised them up. Death was no match for him. Because of what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead, death has lost its power. And for those who believe in Jesus, death has lost its power over us. And so Romans 8, 11 says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So to move from being perplexed to being emboldened, you have to remember what Jesus said and did. And when you realize what Jesus has done for you and what he did for you, you're left marveling. And you know what happens then? It starts to work backwards. You now become more emboldened to share the good news. And then you're more encouraged to take your questions and bring them to God. Your questions about him, you're more encouraged to bring them to him because your heart's been so changed and so charged up by what he's done and how he's defeated death. And if he's defeated death, surely he can answer some of your questions. No matter how complex they might be, no matter how perplexed you are. So now when life gets hard, you can look at the empty tomb and you can marvel at everything God has done for you in Jesus and guess what? Your perspective changes. You now have this resurrection perspective. So you look at your questions, you look at your uncertainties, your doubt, your anxiety and fear and you bring those to God. And because if the tomb is empty, nothing about my life can't be handled by him. And when I realize that, I become all the more emboldened. And time and time again, I get to have front row seat to God doing resurrection things in my life. And I marvel at all he's done. And so with this kind of perspective, a resurrection perspective, life may hurt you. But because you have that perspective, you know it will never destroy you. Satan may come after you, but he can't overcome you. You might fall into sin, but you have a way out. Because the resurrection proves that death doesn't have the last word. God does. Resurrection proves that my sin doesn't have the last word. God does. Jesus' resurrection proves that your pain, your sickness, your difficulties, your anxieties and fear do not have the last word. God does. And God is on your side. So if you're skeptical of the resurrection or you're stuck in perplexity because of life's complexity, find comfort in these first witnesses who are also skeptical. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, be emboldened to share the good news of his resurrection. Don't sit on your hands. Get to work. I love what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about how Jesus was resurrected from dead. And he talks about how one day he's going to resurrect the entire creation. And we're going to be resurrected. And then Paul doesn't say, hey, sit at home and just pray till this happens. Paul says what? 1 Corinthians 15, 18. Says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says, 
if the resurrection is real, if it's going to happen again one day. He doesn't say, stay home and pray. Stay home and read your Bible. Stay home and sit on your hands and just wait it out. He says, no, get to work. And if your life's been beaten down and things have been really hard, I just invite you to take on a resurrection perspective. Those things don't have to beat you up and beat you down. They don't have the last word. One preacher likes to say, you're not a candle, you're a bonfire. Too many of us, when life gets hard, we see ourselves as candles. One thing blows us out. What happens in a bonfire when oxygen hits it? It gets what? Stronger and bigger. With that kind of power, with that resurrected perspective, look at your life, look at the tomb, and then look above that at the goodness of God who has the last word on everything that happens to you. So God invites you to come to him with all your questions and doubts. And he desires that you be emboldened by the resurrection of Jesus, and he wants you to leave today marveling over what he's done for you in Jesus. Let's pray. With heads down and eyes closed, I just want to invite you, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, to just take a moment and silently just pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've been asking so many questions about God, and I've never brought them to God. I bring them to you. I lay my sin and my shame and my guilt before you. Forgive me. And Jesus promises that when you do that, he forgives you and puts you in right relationship with God. And Father, for the rest of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we pray that we would bring our questions and doubts and uncertainties to you, that we'd be emboldened by the resurrection and that we wouldn't just leave today, oh, great, that was a great Easter service or the preacher was all right. But that we leave today going, the resurrection has changed everything. Give us that resurrection perspective when life gets hard. Help us to remember everything Jesus has done for us and said to us and about us. And may we live a life in that power, in that resurrection power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We now come to a time in our service where we confess our sins to God. So the beauty of the cross and the resurrection is that when we confess our sins, God forgives us. So we don't have to be afraid to confess our sins to him. And guess what? We also have to be afraid to confess it to each other. And so the way we do that here is we have a 